Good morning. It's good to see you all as we uh, gather together for Bible study, as we're continuing verse by verse in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, arriving today at Leviticus chapter 24. I hope you've all had a wonderful week. We've got a very, very busy week ahead at uh, the seminary and college with the opening convocation, which is uh, always a big moving affair on Tuesday morning, and then we have new trustees coming in and trustee officers uh, coming in, and some of you, Lord willing, will, will be playing in the Invitational Golf Tournament tomorrow. I will uh, not be playing in the Invitational Golf Tournament because I did not receive an invitation. It's uh, because I would be out there the following Monday still trying to finish <laughs> 18 holes of golf. All right. Okay, let's pray. Our Father, we come before you in wonder of the fact that you speak to us, that you desire that we know you, that you draw us unto yourself by the power of your word. Father, to the glory of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, may this word animate us and take possession of us, fascinate us, and conform us to the image of Christ. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. I think most Christians, as they think about the Pentateuch, think about Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, and they don't know what to do with Leviticus and Numbers. There are others who would look at Leviticus and Numbers and say, you know, that's just technical instruction to Israel in the Old Covenant. And so as Christ's New Covenant people is the church, what do we have to do with that? I, I think we've seen by now that in Leviticus and in Numbers, we actually see a great deal of the developing theology of Israel. And that includes atonement theology, priesthood theology, mediator theology, and all this becomes absolutely necessary in our understanding of Jesus Christ, His person, and His work. The text we will see today amplifies and underlines that, and yet I think many Christians might even read this entire passage without understanding that's exactly what has happened. In Leviticus 24, we also encounter a surprise, and we'll draw attention to that surprise in case you're not surprised, and uh, we, will, we will consider some things that we might not consider in this sense unless we have this text of Scripture, which by the grace of God we have, we might not think the right thoughts in the right pattern, but for this very passage. We begin Leviticus chapter 24, verse 1. Again, the Lord will speak to Moses. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from the beaten olives for the lamp, that the light may be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. You shall take fine flour and bake twelve loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever, and it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. Now, you might at this point be having the experience that you have in other forms of communication, media, encounter with a text. You read a passage and you say, I think I've read this before. As a matter of fact, in a passage like this, you might say, you know, I think I've read this passage two or three times. Liberal scholars looking at the book of Leviticus think at this point it must be something of a patchwork, something like a 
you know, a notebook of sketches. You know, this is out of sequence. Why? This is the opening to the book of Leviticus. Why are we back here? Why, why, why are we about the lamps in, in the holy place? And why are we about the showbread, the bread of presence and the perpetual dew? I mean, we, we knew all of that already. I mean, in the economy of God's revelation, why would this come again? And furthermore, liberal scholars looking at this who believe it's just a later document, remember, compiled out of all the, the evidence of the cult of Israel, they'll come back and say, well, you know, it, 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 if you repeat, generally it's because you're adding something. Well, there, there's really nothing added here. This is, this is pretty much exactly what we already knew. And then they'll, they'll say, look, this doesn't even seem to have any kind of rational sequence. We, we've been talking, this is obviously the concluding section of Leviticus, and we were just talking about the feasts and the festivals, and that added new information. We, we at least had greater detail and specificity. But why do we have this? Well, the answer, according to an appropriate doctrine of Scripture, is because the Lord repeats things to His people which tells us more about the people than about the Lord. Parents understand this. Uh, anyone, wives are looking at me with an unusual cogency, understand this. Sometimes the same material needs to be gone over again and again. Teachers understand this. Now, the why now well, it probably has to do with what immediately will follow rather than what came before. But before we rush to what follows, let's consider what is really given us here in a very concise form. This is something that we have discussed and in some detail tried to put into context. But maybe one of the reasons why the Lord gave Israel this text is so that Israel can corporately Reason through again the logic of the tent of meeting, the logic of the tabernacle. Maybe, maybe the main purpose of this particular passage is not so much about the lamps and the table and the bread on the table, the bread of presence, the showbread. Maybe that's not it. Maybe it's just to underline and affirm again what the book of Leviticus is aimed toward, and that is preparing the children of Israel for their life with a tent of meeting, with a tabernacle. You recall earlier, as Moses was meeting with the Lord, it was in a hastily built tent outside of the camp. Now, the tent of meeting is to be built inside the camp, according to the specifications of what had been given. The tent of meeting, or the tabernacle, is the place where the revelation of God will appear, where God will be present with His people and where He will speak to His people. Now, as you think about the, the Pentateuch, you think about a passage like Exodus 40. And it is very interesting that uh, if, if, if you just take the, uh, the book of Exodus, and I appreciate Ligon Duncan has, uh, has outlined this very well. If you, just, if you just take Exodus 25 to 40, the tabernacle is called both the tabernacle and the tent of meeting, and then five times is called the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. So, like a seminarian, maybe interesting little first-year seminarian argument, or the tabernacle and the tent of meeting, the same thing. Yes and no. Basically, yes. But the tent of meeting is, in another sense, inside the tabernacle. And this is just a normal way of speaking. You're making reference to the same basic place, but within the place is a place in the tent of meeting. Now, before you think about the where, we need to think about the who. And this is something else that Honestly, as a young evangelical, I did not know. I, 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 completely off of my knowledge was the role of Moses, other than just how I understood Moses. And it had Moses presented to me. And as I had heard Moses preached as a prophet, as a leader, as uh, the, the, the one chosen by God to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt to, uh, to, to be the commander and the leader. Uh, of, of the uh, children of Israel and the Exodus, 
what I did not know, what was not made clear to me, is the fact that Moses is God's appointed mediator. And, and this is not just something by inference. It's not just something by implication. It is explicitly made clear that Moses is the mediator. Moses is now functioning as a mediator, so much so that the first five books of the Scripture will be described as the books of Moses. In this sense, Moses is a primary, if not the primary, type of Jesus Christ as mediator. Not only that, this passage, as we shall see, this passage right here, just these few verses, actually are necessary, fundamental background knowledge for understanding Christ, for understanding the mediatorship of Christ, for understanding even the atonement accomplished by Christ. You say, well, how? Where, where, Where is that? Well, I want you to see it with me. Number one, we have two mediators, but let's just look in this passage. The mediator is Moses. That is amplified, as we have seen through the book of Leviticus, when God doesn't speak to Israel, God speaks to Moses. Even when there are more there, such as when Aaron's allowed to hear, it's God speaking to Moses and Aaron, but, but Moses is the key. And, and God doesn't speak to Aaron without Moses. And when, Aaron's, when God speaks to Moses about Aaron, Aaron's not there. Now, we just need to underline what's at stake here. The big issue, and this is something else that just is it's one of those dawning awarenesses that when Christians get it, you get it and you go, okay, everything in my whole mentality of Christianity, my whole mentality of life in the cosmos changes. The most desperate situation for Israel would have been silence. We often don't think about this, but in other words, the exodus of Israel out of bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt would have, first of all, we wouldn't know the story, but beyond that, it would have been a horror story had they simply been led by a prophet out of Egypt into the wilderness. But for the continuing revelation of God, the story would have been they were all eaten, consumed, they died of thirst, they died of hunger, and they're Bones were found in the desert by National Geographic in 1942. No, 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 no. They are living by the Word of God. But living by the Word of God, they're, they're, they're living by the manna, for one thing, you know that. They're living by the bread. The bread, again, the, the, that powerful metaphor, again, which points to Christ as the, as the, as the, the bread of life. They're living by the Word of God because they don't have any choice. They don't have any choice at all. Like a two or three year old lost in the woods. Got to have a voice. A voice even to know what to do, a voice to know who to call, a voice to know who to, to whom to go, a voice to know where, where salvation and rescue lies. It's a, we're, we are in desperate need of a voice. Just think about that for ourselves. We, we, we can't survive without the voice of God. We can't. We don't know who we are, we don't know how to live. We don't know who Christ is. We don't know how to be saved. We would be like that toddler in a dark wood, silence. But God does speak to us. But in this dispensation, and I use the word dispensation as in old and new covenant, in this covenant, God speaks through Moses, his mediator. That's how this begins. But Moses is not always going to be with them. Moses knows that. And God's presence is with Israel. You know, we had a pillar of fire, column spoke of a pillar of fire. We had, we had God's presence was very clear. God's presence is in this tent of meeting. And, and again, so as you look to Chapter 24, as we just read, those first two paragraphs, yeah, there are technical issues concerning the candles and the table and the bread, but the big issue there is tabernacle. The big issue there is 
tent of meeting. We need to think about something else. Insofar as, for instance, in Exodus, this structure is known as the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. So pointing to the fact that the, the entire structure exists for the tent of meeting. So the, the tent of meeting is the issue. When the prophet is invited in, or the priest, as will come, as will come now in the age of the priesthood, you see, according to the calendar of the Lord, goes into the tent of meeting, the mediatorship is fulfilled through the sacrifice that will be performed in such a way that for Israel representation is made, atonement is made. And as we know, this is not full atonement for sin. This is holding back the wrath of God until the full atonement of sin and the atonement of Christ. But that's the point, isn't it? It helps us to understand exactly what was going on in Christ. And, and by the way, in John, in the opening chapter, we're told that, uh, and the Word became flesh and, the, the, and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But the, the text there really is, and, and the word tabernacled, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. As you, as you look at this and you say, well, where, where is our tabernacle? Well, our tabernacle is right now in heaven and the ascended Christ. He is, he is our tabernacle. He is, he is our holy of holies. That's why, again, it says he brought not the, the book of Hebrews says he, he, he went into the holy of holies in the, the heavenly holy of holies. And there he shed his own blood, not the blood of ox or, or goats or lambs, but his own blood in full atonement for sin. So as we're looking at this and we're looking at the, the details about the candles and the table and uh, of the, the tent, the showbread, bread of presents, you say, well, where's that for us? Well, actually, it's a, all this is for us ascended at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Our mediator is not Moses. He was the mediator, as Hebrews says, of a covenant. Christ is the mediator of a new and better covenant enacted on better promises promise of full forgiveness of sin, the gift of everlasting life, and all the promises that come with Christ. But I admit I'm fascinated by the tabernacle, just as I'm fascinated by the temple. I'm, and, and, and the temple is, in a sense, a permanent tabernacle. The Holy of Holies in the temple is like the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And so we, we, we have such a category distinction that we have to get over. I mean, here we are. We're in the Whatever, whatever we call this in this church, that's loaded and freighted in evangelical and Baptist language. Uh, sometimes you say the, the sanctuary. But uh, some Baptists, older Baptists, or when I was young they were older, now they're with the Lord. Most of them, they're, uh, they would have said, don't call it a sanctuary because a sanctuary implies a sacrifice. It's a sanctuary implies something popish, and uh, indeed, it is because in the Catholic Mass, there is a piece of paraphernalia called the sanctuary, which is where they put the consecrated, the, what they would say is the transubstantiated bread, which now is the presence of Christ. So they put the bread Jesus in this tabernacle, that which is left over from communion. And you can understand why. Early Baptists said, well, we're not going to use that word. Just, just leave out the word sanctuary because there's, there's, there are no goats being brought in here uh, for, for sacrifice, and, uh, and there is no mass going on here. And other people say, well, it's called a worship center. Well, that, that sounds about, sounds like it belongs to, you know, it's the left wing of a hotel. You got the, you got the athletic center on this side, you got the worship center on this side. And so uh, then they'll say, no, it's just our building. It's just our building, or, or they'll name it a hall. That was a Baptist thing of doing. You name it like, like uh, Jones Hall. We're, we're going to worship today in Jones Hall. And it's just a way of coming up with a way of not saying sanctuary. And, uh, and you can't say church because the church is the people. It's not the building, so don't get that wrong. Okay, all that to say, 
we're not battling Baptists over the terminology, and I honestly get confused about exactly what we do call it here. This place right here, where we are now, the distinction is really different. There's no holy of holies here. There's no tent. This is not the sanctuary of the tent of meeting, no. We have Christ, Christ alone, who is our tabernacle. The book of Hebrews just helps so much in tying all of this together. And uh, I just want to remind us this morning, we have a very strong tabernacle theology. We have a very strong tent of meeting theology. Everything that is here, the obsession of Israel, should be our obsession fulfilled in Christ. Christ tabernacled among us, and he is the tent of meeting where he entered carrying his own blood, not the blood of an animal. And then he made full atonement for sin. It's, uh, it's enough to make you very, very, very happy for eternity. As we look at this passage, all this next comes with a surprise. And it is a surprise. I, I, I'm going to see if you're surprised, okay? You should be surprised. See. If you're not, you yourself should be surprised. You're not surprised. Beginning in verse 10, now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel, and the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp, and the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelemith, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan, and they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be made clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Okay, do you feel shocked? You don't look as shocked as you should be. What's shocking about this passage? Okay. Will you say the content? No, not the content yet. That's going to be shocking too. What's shocking is that it is a narrative passage. Leviticus is not thought of as having any narrative in it. But as you will recall, there was another narrative in Leviticus. And as we're going to see, and this shows you sometimes you just think, okay, I don't know how an atheist or agnostic scholar of literature can explain this. Something of profound theological importance and also of sheer brilliance is taking place here. There's a sophistication in the literature of Leviticus that the average Christian just never, never, ever sees. And we just confronted it. The previous narrative passage that surprised us so much was about Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. And remember what happened back in Exodus in Leviticus 10. And Nadab and Abihu were the sons of Aaron, and two of them were entrusted, had just been entrusted, the performance of the sacrifice. And you'll remember they broke the rules of the uh, of the of the ceremony, and they put strange fire on the altar. We don't know exactly what that means, but in a very significant way, at the most urgent point in the sacrifice, they freelanced. And, and, and that was considered an unspeakable affront to God and a desecration of God's name and of the, the sacrifice that he had ordered. And you'll remember that they were burned, that Nadab and Abihu were burned. And you remember the solemnity that fell upon the children of Israel and the solemnity that fell upon Aaron because of the priesthood is Aaron and his descendants. And, and you'll recall the, the, your Aaron's silence. I mean, he was silent before the Lord. And, and then the Lord was at, at a point silent to, uh, to Aaron and uh, but the, it was not a particularly long narrative passage, but it, 
it was a shocking narrative passage even then because it was like, okay, you do this, you do this, here's this particular sacrifice, here's this offering, here's you burn this one, you, 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 you do it with this, this uh, the priest can't eat, this is taken outside the camp, oh, just all this detail, and then Nadab and Abihu. And now we're talking about feasts, and we're talking about the, the, the showbread, and we're talking about the preparations of the tabernacle, and all of a sudden, a half-Israelite blasphemer. Now, it's really interesting. You've had good, orthodox, wonderful interpreters of Leviticus throughout the history of the church who have speculated, I think this is very interesting, that these two events happened in the course of the Lord speaking all these things to Moses actually makes a lot of literary sense. It makes a lot of sense in the context of the text of Leviticus. I don't know if you follow me, but in other words, the Lord had revealed this much to Moses, and then Nadab and Abihu pull their stupid stunt. And now you got to deal with that. And so here we are just in the repetition and the elucidation and further explanation of everything from the feast days to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and all of a sudden, a blasphemer. The interesting thing about the blasphemer is, I mean, there are many interesting things about the blasphemer, but one of the interesting things about it is that Israel at this point does not know what to do. You notice this? Israel doesn't know what to do. They, they put him under arrest till they can figure out what to do. Yeah, we better look closely at this text. An Israelite woman's son. That's key. He came from an, an, an Israeli woman's womb. But his father was an Egyptian. Well, that's understandable, especially in the Exodus. We're not, there's no further explanation here, but that's just evidently something we should know. Went out among the people of Israel... And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. Well, that can happen. You know, this enormous crowd of people wandering in the wilderness. You've got a bunch of men, young men. Things can happen. People can get angry. Tempers can get hot. They fought. By the way, there's some fascinating laws and illustrations of laws given in the Pentateuch about what happens when men fight. There's even a famous passage in the scripture about what happens when men are fighting and the women of one decides to intervene in, shall we say, a very personal way. This is a fight. What happens in the midst of this fight is that the man whose mother was Israelite and father was an Egyptian blasphemed the name and cursed. This is verse 11. He, he blasphemed the name and cursed well, that is not just like a really, really bad thing, a really, really serious infraction, violation of the law and sin. It's not, just, it's not just that. This threatens the existence of Israel. That's something we often don't think about when we use the word blasphemy. We see it used in the larger culture. We're going to have to look closely at this. This is a phenomenal passage for us to consider today, even with headline significance somewhere in the world, probably today. This is, a, this is two men, and uh, they're hot, they're fighting, they're angry. And in the midst of the fight, one man blasphemes the name of the Lord. Let's look again at the specific indictment. The Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed so they're, they're described here as two different things, or one, the second, the curse, the amplification of the first. And again, notice they don't know exactly what to do. But they know they have to, be do, they have to do something because this particular narrative passage has interrupted Leviticus. One way or another, it has interrupted Leviticus. And this event has interrupted Israel. Israel knows it can't survive in the wilderness without God. It, 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 they, they serve and... and and worship the one true and living God who has made covenant with them. He is their God. He's everything. Thus, blasphemy against his name. And, a, and a, a, it's just 
It's even referred to here as the name, as you'll see in the Hebrew. And uh, the, the curse, well, it doesn't just threaten this man's eternal destiny. It's about to do that in a big way. His life, it, it threatens Israel. And, and, but Israel doesn't know what to do. Verse 12 tells us that they don't yet know what to do. And so they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be made clear to them. Now, by the way, it's another just reminder that throughout most of the ancient world, if not all of the ancient world, there's no such thing as a penitentiary. You're, you're not going to drive to Eddyville to a state penitentiary where people are serving, you know, four-year terms, 10-year terms, 25 to life, life in prison without chance of parole. There, there is none of that. Custody is temporary until a disposition of a case can be made. So they, they take him into custody. Now, you know Moses is going to have to be involved. In verse 13, again, mediatorship by revelation. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, so Moses doesn't rule and say, here's what we're going to do. I've just been thinking about this. I've been reasoning from everything the Lord's told me thus far. And, you know, I uh, think somebody ought to write this down, by the way. This will be the code books of the law books of Israel. Whenever we get somewhere and have a book, you can put it on a shelf. Scroll, you can roll it up. No, Moses doesn't say, here's what we're going to do. The Lord talks to Moses, spoke to Moses saying, bring out of the camp the one who is cursed and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head. And let the congregation stone him and speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Okay, here's a, here's a challenge for us. We've, uh, we've sort of been using some language that we... You know, we, we might not be satisfied we understand. What is blasphemy? What, 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 anyone know what blasphemy is? Anyone have a clue? Oh, you want to offer a definition of blasphemy? Irreverence to Christ, okay. Yeah, let's just say irreverence is the key to that. Uh, Well, how do you know you didn't do it this morning? Maybe we should take you into custody. My point is the reticence of people to jump out and say they know what blasphemy is. Well, in the biblical, and by the way, blasphemy is an, is an English word. You can figure that out. Uh, you can track the etymology in the English, which is used in the translation here. And, and, and it's, it's probably a good word for us to consider, um, good word for the translators to have chosen. But to blaspheme a name is, um, is, is verbal violence, to desecrate, desacralize, insult, reject the truth of, cast down, scandalize a name. Uh, to blaspheme is to deny the power of the name. It is to violate. It is sometimes in Scripture, blasphemy is, is, will refer to an act such as David's adultery is a blasphemy. Maybe that tells us something about the internal motivation of David and the fact he knew, he knew, he knew, he knew, he knew that he was violating the law of God, even the Ten Commandments, and yet he did so, and it's described as a form of blasphemy. The most common use of the word blasphemy in the Old and the New Testament is either slandering God by speaking of him wrongly or cursing his name, as in denying him and disrespecting him. And, and I think probably the second of those definitions is the one we think of more. It's, it's, it's like insulting God. So let's take the word insulting. Maybe that's a, a good way to look at it because we all understand insults. You know, deliberately insulting God. And, uh, and, and, and by the way, in this sense, Elijah is a great blasphemer, right? First Kings 18, he's a fantastic blasphemer. He's not blaspheming the one true and living God. He's blaspheming the worship of the Baal, saying, you know, hey, where, where's your God? Maybe he's sleeping. 
you know, Elijah is like the king of the blasphemers against the Baals when he says, uh, you know, where are they? Where are they? You know, where, 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 let the fire fall. Where are they? You know, maybe he's uh, relieving himself in the woods. I put in in the woods. He didn't actually say that. Maybe he's relieving himself. It, it, but he's, he just hurls insults. Blaspheming does not mean just not, not believing. It's, it's more active than that. But the, this kind of curse, this kind of insult, that, that we understand that. But the second thing that is so often used or, or brings the word blasphemy in the Scripture is speaking wrongly about God, perhaps even claiming to be God. The insults are easy to understand. There's, there's, there's simply no doubt about that. We, we, we understand. Uh, there, there are other words that are very similar. Curse, revile, to despise the name. Now, all these mentioned in Scripture are forms of blasphemy. It is very interesting to look at the New Testament. And uh, we, we are told that for instance, in a passage like Acts chapter 13, that when the Jewish authorities heard Paul, they blasphemed, which must mean that they uh, denied Christ in, in, in very direct terms. On the other hand, the Jewish authorities accused Christ of blaspheming by claiming to be God. So uh, blasphemy, and here, here, here's a very important thing, because this is where I think the water hits the wheel where we are right now. Blasphemy in a biblical sense is not about you being insulted by some religious statement. It is about God being insulted, aggrieved, offended. Now, the reason I bring this up is that if you talk about the issue of blasphemy, you have to realize there are thousands and thousands of anti-blasphemy laws around the world. Uh, in America, there are still blasphemy laws, anti-blasphemy laws, that is, on the books in many American states. Uh, in some parts of the world, we think recently of, uh, of for instance, the, uh, the shooting, stabbing actually, excuse me, it was a stabbing of Salman Rushdie due to a fatwa that had been issued, I think as far back as 1989, by the then Ayatollah Khomeini. You look at that and you say, well, it was blasphemy laws that brought that about. Uh, blasphemy laws are still very current in Muslim-dominated lands, in particular, you know, places like Indonesia, Singapore. Um, you will be dealt with if you blaspheme. And other places... Uh, you may well forfeit your life if you are believed to have blasphemed. So, so, so what do we do with uh, Kentucky in 2022? By a biblical definition, as we've seen, such things as attributing to God, which is not true about God, robbing God of his glory, you might say, in another sense, insulting God, describing God properly, um, Speaking wrongly with intentionality about God so as to render his character and his acts false. Well, there's a lot of blasphemy going on. I mean, we are living in blasphemy Kentucky. And look, for all I know, there may be some kind of anti-blasphemy law on the books of some relevant jurisdiction around here. But we, uh, we don't have floggings, either here at 1st at 3rd uh, Avenue Baptist Church or at in our judicial system within the, the city or the state. So do we take blasphemy seriously or not? And, and, and who are we? Is we Third Avenue Baptist Church or is we the Southern Baptist Convention or is we the city of Louisville or some jurisdiction? Well, the, the bottom line is, is this. Um, most European nations still have fairly strong, if they're, if they're even like... Uh, nullified or significantly modified by subsequent legislation. Most European nations, being a part of a united Christendom, have very strong laws, indeed, probably capital punishment invoking laws 
prohibiting or punishing, blasphemy. So, so what does it say that we live in a time and in a culture, a jurisdiction, a country where blasphemy is perhaps even protected by constitutional amendment? Bill of Rights. Well, you could say, well, that's easy because what we've done in this country is to separate the civic from the churchly, the religious and the secular function of government. But I'll be making the strong argument for the rest of my life if the Lord gives me breath as I've been making all my life, and that is that that break is never so clear as people claim. It just, it just isn't. It isn't because you take our own supposedly secular law, there's no explanation for why it is as it is and why it has been what it has been except by the inheritance not only of, say, a Christian tradition but of biblical Christianity. Even the definition of crimes comes out of a biblically informed tradition. Then there are those who say, well, no, here, here's the deal, here's the deal. There are two tablets of the law, and uh, the, the civic government is assigned only, mostly out of, the, out of the latter commandments, not the you shall have no other gods before you, but you shall not murder. Well, again, that, that's, that's kind of neat to preach, but it's very hard to apply in a hard and fast rule. Americans, and that will include many American Christians, you know, looking to a place like, uh, well, I'll just say the, uh, the nations of North Africa, Islamic states, and, and would say, well, it's just unthinkably, it's, it's, it's barbaric, it's cruel what they do to people they accuse of blasphemy. Or you could look at the horrible situations that emerge in a place such as India or, or Pakistan, uh, where after the partition, where you have Pakistan as a overwhelmingly Islamic state and India is an over, overwhelmingly Hindu state. I mean, and, and you can have... You can have blasphemy or you can have accusations of blasphemy used basically to carry out vengeance against someone. Christians have to be careful in looking to a passage like this. Are, are, are we saying we should go back to this? In other words, is this, is this what we should do? And I know m many of you are thinking, hey, we are modern constitutionalists. We understand the distinction between the church and the state. Uh, blasphemy is a church issue. It, uh, it isn't a secular state issue. So that's why we're not like many other nations. We, we don't have blasphemy trials going on. You have to worry about going down to the courthouse for the latest blasphemy trial because we made a clear distinction. I'm just going to argue to you that distinction is not as clear as you might think. Uh, there is indeed a very clear constitutional protection of speech. Is there, and freedom of religion, or what's often called freedom of worship, that's too reductible. It actually is freedom of religious exercise. And we have freedom of speech. Just anecdotally this week, I was reading a, a, an English jurist in dialogue with a German jurist, and the one thing upon which they agreed is that the strongest constitutional statement so far known in the history of humanity guaranteeing free speech is the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. Just very interesting. It said no nation before and no nation after has come close to guaranteeing free speech as does the United States Constitution. And, and that means the United States Constitution, something we might not think about here, the United States Constitution's First Amendment, at least theoretically and perhaps even textually, affirms a right to blasphemy. Now, what do Christians do with that? Now, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in uncharted terrain here, so let me just warn you, I am not speaking with the authority of, uh, of 20 centuries of Christian tradition or the authority of Scripture in a clear directive. I'm talking to you out of language that I've been involved in for years in legal and political and theological circles trying to figure these things out. It's not easy. I would argue that Christians, regardless of the Constitution of the United States, cannot take blasphemy 
casually. I mean, it, it seems that God's covenant people, and it seems the early church understood as God's covenant people that they had a responsibility to preserve and protect and honor the name. And, and, and where Christians became the majority of the population and where Christianity was as very quickly throughout much of the West as it was known or became known and, uh, and, and throughout Europe, you had a Christian civilization and blasphemy was a part of the civic as well as of the ecclesial law. The, the, the ecclesial authorities could look to the secular authorities insofar as they were secular, that is to say the government, to uh, carry out a penalty against blasphemy. So, am I calling for a return to that? No, I'm, I, I'm not. And, and I'm going to tell you why in, in just a moment, because it's not just constitutional, it's theological, and uh, I'll get to that in just a moment. But I just suggest to you, we take blasphemy far too unseriously. Now, my sociological theory is that blasphemy is going to be defined according to the majority worldview or religious commitments of the population at any given time. I think it's just a sociological fact. That's why I think secularists are just, they're just dishonest. In other words, if you have Poland where the vast majority of the population is Catholic, guess what? You got a Catholic country. You can say, well, they're a part of the European Union, which means they, they're not a confessional state. Yeah, they're not a confessional state, but they're a Catholic country. I mean, this is, that's just a fact. I mean, the majority of people, a vast majority of people have the same religious commitment. I was reading last night, secular historian of the United States, not writing something for Christians, not writing something even in the middle of an argument, just, just made a statement about the midpoint of the 20th century in the 1950s that the, the consensus of the American colonists at the time of the revolution was not merely Christian, but was almost exclusively Protestant. So in other words, the, the United States Constitution, and by the time it came out in 1789, it guaranteed freedom of religious exercise and all the rest, but the religious diversity was extremely limited. And what it was basically limited to was Catholics and Jewish people, both of whom, well, mostly the Jewish people were historically important, but population-wise not numerous. And, um, and the Catholics uh, would not become very numerous, of course, until the waves of immigration from places like uh, Ireland and and uh, Northern Europe, Italy, uh, in the early 20th century. So what am I arguing? I'm not arguing constitutional theory. I'm just arguing the fact that blasphemy laws are really not practical given our current constitutional order. But I am going to suggest to you that every culture will reflect the prevailing worldview of its majority, and that majority will one way or another, maybe not by trial, but it will exercise sanctions against blasphemy. And I want to tell you, the liberal academy is doing that right now. It is not doing it on behalf of the one true and living God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But you go to an elite campus in the United States and you defy the orthodoxy, there are speech codes in all kinds of ways you're going to be shut down. Now, they're not going to call it blasphemy, but that's exactly what's going on. It's, it's, it's the exact logic of blasphemy. You are using hate speech. You are, and, so, and look, sometimes there's speech that's driven by hate and speech that can do harm. But now we're told if you say that a boy is a boy and a girl is a girl, you are using language that harms people. You are violating orthodoxy, which just gets back to the fact that secularism is a religion. We're running out of time, as the noise makes very clear. There's a further complication for us, and that is that if you think of Louisville, Kentucky right now, if any of us get involved in any kind of major conversation about, say, even the religious diversity in this, in this city, not in terms of large populations necessarily, but, but just the religious diversity, 
We're living in a situation in which everybody's going to blaspheme somebody's God. Uh, do I make sense when I say that? Everybody's going to blaspheme somebody's God because you believe, if Christians committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the God of the Bible, that means we see all other gods as false gods. We actually see all other forms of religion as idolatries. In other words, you go to certain countries right now, it's you who will be arrested for blasphemy. Okay, we have to end. Let's just put it this way. How in an ideal situation, according to faithfulness to God's Word, we would think of blasphemy in our civilizational, cultural, even legal context. That's difficult to think through. I think probably what Christians should think is that blasphemy should be taken most seriously in our church and in our homes, also in our circle of influence. But let's be honest, we would like to see and would hope to see the truth of the Savior and of the gospel take root in society, yes, as well as in human hearts, such that even in this age, more and more persons would be convicted, not so much in a court of law, but in their hearts, of the sin of blasphemy, and the name of the Lord would be honored. I don't think we can be true Christians if we do not yearn for the name of the one true and living God the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I don't, think, I don't think we can be faithful if we do not yearn for that name to be honored. And if we are not pained when it is dishonored, whether it is dishonored by unbelievers. I hope I've made some kind of sense. It's a convoluted question when we are not Israel in the wilderness. It's, uh, it's one, however, I think we need to take with more seriousness and not with less, lest we, by unseriousness, blaspheme the name. Let's pray. Our Father, we are just so thankful for all you've given us in your word. Thank you for giving us this passage. Thank you for giving us this issue with which to struggle. Father, right here in our hearts, in our homes, in, in this church, and in all gospel churches, may your name be Glorify. Glory to your name, we pray, O Lord. Amen.